Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Living Water's uh, original plan was uh, not for me to be up here this morning. Uh, the original plan was for Pastor Ben uh, to be here this morning, uh, to be wrapping up uh, Romans chapter 8, and then next week for me to begin uh, working on Romans chapter 9. Uh, however, uh, we make our plans, God directs our path, and uh, so God's plan uh, was that Pastor Ben would be sick, and uh, so he called me yesterday morning, and uh, the dude is so incredibly conscientious. I mean, he is like, I could tell he, he sounds horrible on the phone. He's like, I'm still, you know, I'm putting the finishing touches on the message, and I'll, I'll be ready for tonight. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Just stay home and uh, rest. And he's like, well, you know, I don't have it to the point where, you know, you'd be able to preach it for me. And I'm like, that's all right, Ben. Well, I actually call him Pastor Ben, but, uh, you know, that's all right. Uh, let's let God kind of take us in a different direction. And so uh, I'm up here this morning. Uh, there's normally a nice black binder here, but there's not a binder full of a lot of notes. Uh, but some things have been transpiring over uh, the last several uh, months and I really believe this is a God-ordained opportunity for us to talk a little bit about why we do what we do here at Living Water. And today, or this particular weekend, is the 21st anniversary of Living Water's establishment of our first worship service. Right about this, so it's what, 9.32, our service started at 10 o'clock back on that uh, first uh, Sunday at Rutherford Elementary School. So right about now, I was losing my mind 21 years ago. Uh, we had uh, went to bed that evening. It was snowing on Saturday night, and uh, the forecast had called for about five, six, seven inches of snow. And uh, Gary Garber, who was one of the guys who had uh, helped start Living Water, Gary had uh, been cautioning me about doing the grand opening on the 21st. You know, it's like right after the farm show, and it always snows at that time, and maybe we should push it back into like March or April. And But we had already kind of laid out all of the plans and things like that. And so I'm like telling, oh, don't worry, Gary, it's not going to snow. Well, you know, it's good that I don't work for the National uh, Weather Service because I would be wrong constantly. Uh, so we went to bed that night. It's snowing. Uh, I had a very... Uh, restless night, as you can imagine, and I uh, got up about 4.30 in the morning, and uh, I drove down Progress Avenue, and Progress Avenue was plowed. I drove down Derry Street. Derry Street was plowed. I got to, to Rutherford, and uh, I made my way up 65th Street, and if you're familiar with 65th Street, it's pretty steep, and uh, so I made my way up 56th Street, and I got to Rutherford Elementary School, and I was shocked. Uh, at that time, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Bob Schweitzer. Bob's probably watching at home right now. Uh, but Bob was in charge of all of the facilities at uh, Central Dolphin School District. I didn't know that Bob was a Christian. We had only, you know, talked over the phone and things like that. He wasn't coming to Living Water at the time. But, but Bob had made sure that the, the plows uh, for Central Dolphin would first go to Rutherford Elementary School. He arranged to have custodial staff come in and... Uh, clear all the sidewalks, and so at like five o'clock in the morning, that place was looking great. I, you know, back then, I don't even know if we had texting back then, but I called all the folks that were part of the setup team, and off we rolled in the midst of uh, five, six, seven inches of snow. 
Uh, we had 96 people come to our, our very first church, uh, church service. And we got there, and we've gotten here because God is incredibly gracious. Um, when Kath and I first started talking about planning a church, it was our heart's desire to uh, create a, a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic church. We felt that that's what God uh, had, had placed in uh, the call in our lives. And, and we weren't quite sure how to do that. We were a, a small group of uh, eight families, all Caucasian. We had my little uh, three-year-old daughter, Nicole, who was African-American. And Nicole was all of the ethnicity that we had at, at Living Water. And so... Uh, those first couple years, uh, you know, you have a dream and, and you believe it's from God, but it's not really kind of materializing the, the way that, that you thought. We uh, did everything we possibly could do to, to draw people of other ethnicities to living water. Our, you know, we made our, our brochures very multi-ethnic. We tried to play music that was, was diverse. I tried to use illustrations from, from diverse backgrounds and, and things like that, and uh, we had a, a, a small uh, minority of people who are, were from different ethnicities, but really for the first couple years, we were uh, predominantly a Caucasian church. And can remember about three years into it, I was very frustrated with God. We were, we were at the elementary school. I was like uh, about a song and a half away from getting ready to preach. And, uh, you know, I was just frustrated. I, I looked through the the crowd, and, you know, it just wasn't what I thought God had for us. And it's not that a congregation of, of just Caucasian folks is bad or anything like that, but God had, had instilled this, this dream and this vision. And I'm like, God, why aren't you doing this? And, and I, I left the, the, the worship room, and I think the worship team's like, you know, what in the world's wrong with Mike? Is he, like, bailing out on us right now? And, and I just had to get away for a couple minutes. And so I I walk down uh, the main corridor of Rutherford Elementary School, and when you get to the front of the building, it kind of tees out. And uh, I, I made a right, and at the, the right end of, of the hallway there is where we had our, our nursery. And our, our nursery uh, consisted of those uh, foam interlocking tiles that you can buy at Sam's Club or Costco to, you know, for your kids to play on so they don't, like, break their brains and stuff. And we had uh, folding partitions and a couple of little porta cribs, and, and I looked in uh, to the nursery, and in the nursery were six kids and a nursery preschool, and, and, and five of them were, were some shade of brown, and one was white. And, you know, I have never, ever heard the Lord speak audibly to me. That would be a really probably terrifying and very cool thing at the same time. But I sensed in my spirit God saying this, Mike, I'm doing this. It's not just the way that you think I should. And that was the, the catalyst to, to, to continue to push me forward. And, and a, a few years later, uh, 2006, uh, God brought uh, Pastor Andrew to our church family. Uh, many of you don't know Pastor Andrew. He passed away in 2015, but Pastor Andrew was a black man from England. He, he came with an incredibly wonderful spirit, and he made a huge difference in our church family. So, so now on our leadership team, it wasn't just a, you know, just a 
a couple Caucasian guys. It was me and Pastor Brian, but also Pastor Andrew. And uh, a few years later, uh, God brought Pastor Ben. And uh, Ben has been an amazing, amazing addition to our church family. And in the process of having those two individuals, they gave us a level of credibility uh, with with the the non-Caucasian crowd of people. And uh, God has done an, an amazing amazing work, but I think that it's really easy to forget how this happened. And uh, over the last two years, uh, I've come to, to realize some things. That, 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 that living water is a very hard place to be at. And let me, let me explain that. Because being a part of this church family comes at a cost. There's a price that you have to pay here. And, and that price that you have to pay here is to consider others better than yourselves. And what happens is our natural inclination is to consider ourselves better than other people. And so, so if you come to Living Water and, and, and the gospel is not the very center of your heart, if that's not the most important thing of all in your lives... This place will become a very hard place to be. And what I have discovered over these last two years is, is that, that basically living water gets broken up into to, to three particular sections. The, the one section is you got maybe about 10% of the people that, that come to living water who are, uh, they are on the left uh, politically, they are on the left theologically, and then, then you've got... Uh, this other group on, on the other side, another 10% who are on the right uh, politically, who are on the right theologically. And, and what happens is in those two particular camps or those two particular tribes, the, 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 the gospel, as much as they love the gospel, there are other things that they happen to love more either their, their political persuasion or, or their economic views or, or maybe some secondary theological issue. And so being part of this church family becomes extremely hard for them and they end up going away. And then there's this 80% that, that's in the middle that, that, that gets the sacrifice that has to be made in order for this to happen. Now, now this is a beautiful place to be a part of and probably I, more than anybody else, gets to experience the fullness of that beauty because as we intentionally reach out across, and, and don't worry, we're going to be getting to this in a moment here, uh, as, as we intentionally reach across these, these ethnic and economic and educational uh, boundaries that, that, that divide people, some very beautiful things happen. Back in 2010, uh, there was a family that came to Living Water. Uh, their names were Reggie and Estelle Franklin. And uh, Reggie and Estelle, they, they were, uh, Reggie was retired. Estelle was getting ready to retire. Uh, she was a nurse. Uh, they had lived in Baltimore all of their lives. They had uh, moved up to central Pennsylvania for things to be a little bit less expensive because it's expensive living down in the Baltimore area. And uh, they, they were an African-American uh, couple, and they, they came uh, to Living Water. And 
we, we quickly became friends. They very quickly uh, engaged into the life of our church family. Reggie got involved uh, with our welcome team. Estelle got involved uh, with our worship team. And they're just a, they, they were fun people to, to be with, extremely fun people to be with. They had three grown children, uh, Chanel, Lisa, and Aaron. And, and they all lived in, in the York, York area and Baltimore area. They would occasionally come to to living water. And on one particular day, after Reggie and Estelle had been here for probably about a year and a half, and after I had met their son Aaron on a number of occasions, my telephone rings, and on the phone it is Estelle. Estelle is crying, and the only words that she can get out of her mouth is this. Pastor Mike, we lost Aaron. And I'm like, Estelle, what do you mean we lost Aaron? And this was right after Easter. And she said, Aaron, uh, we couldn't get a hold of him on Easter. And so on, on Easter Monday, Reggie drove down to his apartment in Baltimore, and uh, he had passed away. And uh, I, I prayed with them on the phone, and then Estelle did something for me that I had, had never really imagine I'd ever have the opportunity. She said, Pastor Mike, uh, I want you to do Aaron's funeral. Now, you got to understand this. Uh, Their family had only worshipped in African-American churches. uh, And so this is a huge deal that that a a pasty, balding Italian uh, is going to be doing this service. We're going to do this service in, in Baltimore because that's where all their family was. If you know anything about Baltimore, Baltimore is a very racially divided area. Um, it's a large uh, African-American population in Baltimore. Uh, many, many, many African-American churches. And uh, so, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just like, man, I cannot blow this. You know, I, I, cannot, I cannot mess this up. And, and so one of the things that, that we, we do here when someone passes away uh, and we're going to do a service for them, we make sure that we go to and meet with a family a couple days before we do the service and spend about, you know, an hour and a half, two and a half hours just learning about the person so that we can actually uh, do a funeral service that's kind of custom made to the person. And so... Uh, I'm going to meet with a family in Baltimore. And so I, I, I get in the car and I drive down to Baltimore and I, I, I go into the, this neighborhood and uh, I, I, I ring the doorbell and a person who I don't know uh, answers the door. And uh, I don't think Reggie and Estelle had told everyone that a white pastor was coming to the door. And so the person who answered the door looked at me like, who are you and why are you in this neighborhood? And, uh, you know, and I said, hey, uh, my name's Pastor Mike. I'm, I'm Reggie and Estelle's pastor, and uh, I've come to meet with a the family. They're oh, Pastor Mike, uh, it's good to meet you. And, and we had just this, this wonderful, wonderful time together. And uh, they were so incredibly kind to me. And I don't know that they, they had any idea how terrified I was, because uh, I, 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 I love Reggie and Estelle, and I did not want to do anything uh, to, to hurt them. And, you know, when, when you cross these 
you know, ethnic and racial boundaries in our culture. There are all kinds of landmines out there to step on that, that you're, you're not intending to do something wrong, but, but sometimes we do, and I was afraid. And, and so I, I wrote the message, and uh, I, I went, uh, a couple days later, we went down to, to do the service, and uh, I, I like to have Kath with me because at least I, I, I know that, you know, she's going to be honest with me, and she's an encouragement to me, and she's She's praying for me, but she couldn't be there. And so um, it was Pastor Andrew and I, we went down, and uh, I was so afraid. I was so afraid that I was going to just mess up uh, horrifically. And uh, I remember just going through the, the service, you know, and it's ticking down to the eulogy where it's my part, and and my nerves are just getting bigger and bigger and more and more nervous. And, and I, I got up and I, I got up in front of these folks and, and I, I am literally the only white guy in the whole place. And uh, I'm looking over this, this crowd of amazing people. And uh, I felt God's spirit just come down upon me in, in a way that I'd never, ever felt before. And there was this you know, when the Bible talks of the peace that passes all understanding that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, I, I felt this incredible peace. And uh, I shared with them, and, and uh, they were so kind, and, and they blessed. They, it was so, it was, I was far more blessed by being there than, than I could have been a blessing. And uh, it was just a picture of what happens when God tears down all of the walls between people. And when we're, we're willing to, to, to take a risk and when others are, are willing to, to, to uh, be grace, gracious to you. And uh, on the 29th of, of this December, Reggie died. And uh, I have some regrets about that. Uh, Reggie was a dear friend. We had talked about, uh, I talked about taking him flying on a number of occasions and, you know, you always think you're going to have a tomorrow. And, uh, and we didn't have a tomorrow. And then Reggie never got that plane ride that I, I had promised him. But uh, I went through the same drill again that I did the last time. And I, this time uh, it was with, with Estelle and her sisters. And, and they were so incredibly kind. And, and then on Thursday, uh, Pastor Paul and I and Danny Foster, we drove down uh, to the church, and, and my mom and dad ended up showing up there. And here, once again, we're in a, in, a, in a black church, and there's four white folks, and it's this white pastor, you know, leading these folks through this, uh, this time of grieving. And God, again, you know, he reminded me that he is at work doing amazing things. And it's never easy, but it's always beautiful. And so I want to have us spend some time today looking at John chapter 4. It's where living water gets its name. And I pray that it will be an encouragement to everyone about how intentional God is about reaching out to us and how we, in turn, need to be intentional about reaching out to others. I'm not going to have you stand because we're going to kind of work our way uh, through the passage. It's up here on the screen. Uh, I want to be reading it off the screen, not out of my Bible, um, just because it's a little bit easier to do that. So 
This is early in the, in the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. And uh, this speaks greatly to, to how we are to interact with one another as we see how Jesus interacts with the, this Samaritan woman. And, and this is uh, how it starts off. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so he had, he had been down in, in the southern part of Palestine in, in what would have been the southern uh, kingdom. And uh, he was in the city of Jerusalem and he was baptizing people on the Jordan River. And, and Judea is the region around Jerusalem. And so he departed again for Galilee, which is north, I don't know, maybe 70 miles or so. Kathy, is my little uh, panel thing there somewhere? Thank you. And so he, he goes... Uh, north to Galilee, and it says this, and, and this word had is the operative word. You're going to see this in just a moment. It said, and he had to pass through Samaria, and we'll explain this in just a moment. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour was noon. So I, I have a little map here, and I know some of you have, have, have seen me take you through some of this before, so if you have, I, I apologize, but you know, hopefully we will learn something new. And many of you, this will be the first for you. So, so Jesus was here in Jerusalem. That's where he was hanging out where he was baptizing people, probably right in about there where the Jordan River feeds into the Dead Sea. And in Jerusalem, there is Mount Zion. It's the holy place. It's where the, where the temple has been built for the Jews. And Jesus is now going to, to leave this area here because the Pharisees are, you know, they're starting to be threatening and he's going to go up north, up to Galilee, where he does the vast majority of his ministry. And if you remember what the text said, the text said that he had to go through Samaria. So when you look at, here's the region of Samaria. Here's the town of Sychar. We're going to learn about this in a second. Here is Mount Gerizim, where there is an opposing temple to the temple that's in Mount Zion. You're gonna, the Samaritans have their own little temple that they built on Mount Gerizim. And so what you would think is that he, it says he had to go through Samaria, which would be right through here. But here's the rub. You see, the Samaritans were a people group that the Jews hated. And there's some I don't, I don't know whether you want to say good reasons for it or not, but there's some reasons why that was the case. Back uh, around 1000 BC is when, when the, the kingdom of, of Israel broke into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom at, at the death of Solomon. And so in the southern kingdom, down here near Jerusalem, you had two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we've talked about this before. In the northern kingdom, you had... Ten of the tribes of Israel. They didn't like one another. 
They, 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 they had, and we've talked about this, they've had issues and problems and things like that. Well, because they're divided, they're now uh, easy pickings uh, for other countries. And so in 70, 722 BC, the Assyrians, who would have been out here in what's modern day uh, Iraq, made their way into the northern kingdom and they take over the northern kingdom. And they take all of the intelligent, desirable Jewish people back to Assyria, back to Babylon, and they leave all of the undesirable Jews here in this region. Now, the other thing that they do is they take people from Assyria and they move them into this region here. So Assyrians are out here, they come here, and they begin to, to uh, intermarry with the Jews. Now, this is a huge problem, not because it's a, a, a racial issue, but because it's a a spiritual issue. God did not want the Israelites to, to marry outside of their own faith system, but these people who got left behind, they marry outside of their own faith system. And so this mixture of, of Jew and Assyrian become the people of Samaria. And so they're hanging out here, they're doing their thing, you know, they're reproducing, creating their own little culture that's going on here but they're not loved by the Jews by any stretch of the imagination. Well, a little while later, the Babylonian kingdom overthrows the Assyrian kingdom, and now the Babylonians are in charge. The Babylonians now have this whole area, but they now come down and they take the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judea, and they destroy the temple. And so now the Jews have no temple at all, they're, they're left behind in Jerusalem. They've taken a lot of other Jews back to what is Babylon, which basically Assyria and Babylon are all kind of intermixed there geographically. But eventually, over time, God is kind, and, and he, he works in the heart of the king of Babylon and allows the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the folks who are the Samaritans are really excited that the temple is going to get rebuilt. And so they come down to, to the Jews and they say, hey, we want to help build the temple with you. And the Jews are like, you're not like us. We don't want anything to do with you. You have been unfaithful. You are, and this is a derogatory term, but you are half-breeds and we want nothing to do with you. So the Samaritans said this, okay, if you want nothing to do with us, then we're going to go back up here, and we're going to build our own temple on Mount Gerizim, and we are going to worship there on Mount Gerizim. Now, some other stuff that happens in the backstory is uh, the Samaritans, years before, whoops, years before that, uh, God is angry with them uh, because they, they, they are, they're, adopted all these pagan rituals and things like that. So God sends lions in, destroys a lot of the, the, the Samaritans, and then the Samaritans freak out, and they go back to the, this is, you know, I'm going back in time, they go back to the Assyrian king and say, hey, we need a Jewish priest to, to help us make the, the, the God of the Jews happy. We need to learn their ways. And so they send a Jewish priest to these guys, and the Jewish priest teaches them uh, the five books 
of the Old Testament, which is called the Pentateuch. So, so here are the Samaritans. They, they worship pagan gods, but they also worship the God of the Jews. Their Bible is the first five books of the Old Testament, and they've got their own temple, and they are hated by the Jews. You've got this ethnic split. So that's where we're working with. So we go to the next couple verses. This is what happens. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, you've got to go back one more time. I'm sorry. I missed the had part. How can I do that? Uh, the map, please. So what happened was because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, whenever a Jew had to make it their way from Judea up to where all these other Jews were up around Galilee, rather than going through Samaria, which is filled with all of these undesirable people, Faithful Jews would cross the Jordan River, go up the east side of the Jordan River, and then when they get up to Galilee, go west. And as I've told people before, this was kind of like, you're a person who lives in Harrisburg, you need to get to Lancaster, and you don't want to be near all the crummy people who live in Middletown. And so rather than taking 283 down to uh, Lancaster, you, you go across 83 here, run down 80, 83 south to York and go across at the bridges at York to get to Lancaster. That's basically what happens here. But the Bible tells us that Jesus had to go through here. Well, he didn't have to go through there for an ethnic reason. He had to go through there because he is being driven by a divine mandate. He has a divine appointment. And now these verses tell us why. It says, a woman from Samaria, so as soon as you read this, if you're a Jew, this is bad news already. She's a Samaritan, and she's a woman, and she's coming to hang out with Jesus. This is not good if you are a first century Jew reading this. Came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And then John, who's the gospel writer, he puts a, a little parenthetical uh, statement there it says for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food so now we know that Jesus is by himself at a well in the middle of the day with a woman this is like you know if we we had the tabloids anymore this would be National Enquirer stuff going on and the Samaritan woman says to him she she is now reacting out of her her uh, understanding of this racial dynamic that's going on. She says, it. how is it that you, a Jew, how does she know that she's a, he's a Jew? She's looking right at him. She can tell the difference. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, not a, from a Samaritan, but from a woman of Samaria? And then John comes and gives us another little thought. He says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. For the whites have no dealings with the blacks. For the Asians have no dealings with the Latinos. For the rich have no dealings with the poor. For the Democrats have no dealings with the Republicans. This is where we're at. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Hence the name of this church. We didn't pick Living Water because we thought that it was a cool name for a church. We picked Living Water because it spoke boldly about what God was calling us to do. And so, so here we have Jesus. He has intentionally went on a divine mission to meet someone who was different than them. Now, over these last many years, I have had lots of people tell me, Pastor Mike, why do we have to be so intentional about this? Why can't it just happen? Why, why can't, can't, can't people of different races and ethnicities and economic statuses and educational classes, why can't they just come together? Why do you have to be intentional about it? Folks, you have to be intentional about it because it will not happen without intentionality. In your workplace, you may have people of different cultures, okay? But you didn't choose that. It just happened. You got to, you know, if you got a job working at Tyco and, and, and uh, you know, they hire a, a Filipino person, that, that's not intentionality on your part. That's happenstance. But in a church, you get to choose. There are lots of churches out there. You get to choose where you want to be. And, and, and if, if a church is going to be reflective of its community, it does not happen without intentionality. You have to be very intentional about it. And Jesus is intentional about doing this. This, is, this was not some little thing he just pulled out of the air. The God of the universe had a plan to, to ultimately, Jesus is going to reconcile people with himself, and then through that reconciliation with him, we will be able to be reconciled to one another. And so Jesus says to her, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, if you knew who you were actually talking to here right now, you, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is looking for water. This woman's there for water. So now she's thinking, wow, this guy knows something that I don't know about a physical need that I have. So it continues. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Isn't that... I mean, I realize Jesus is, is God, all right? But isn't that like a guy? We like show up at a well and we just don't come prepared. The lady comes prepared. We do not come prepared. And, and she says, you don't have anything to draw water with. And the well is deep. And she says, where do you get that living water? What does she think Jesus knows? She thinks that Jesus knows of a place where there is a flowing stream. She thinks Jesus knows about a place where she's not going to have to drop a bucket down and hoist this puppy up, that all she's got to do is put the bucket in the stream and she will have this flowing, living water. Where do you get that water? And then she asks this question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
Well, yes, I actually am, but I'm not going to tell you that yet. He gave us the well and drank for it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What is going on here? She is actually making a tie back to what? Their common ancestor. That, that they are like one another. And, and I don't know that she even realizes that she's doing this. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water out of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. They're talking about two totally different things here. He's talking about eternal life, the eternal thing. She's talking about temporal stuff. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this woman is like, this is good. I think I like this. And, and the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Again, she hasn't totally got it yet. She doesn't got the eternity thing going on here. But she's thinking to herself, wow, he's going to give me water that I will never, ever have to come here to get water again. You know, maybe it's like the, 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 you know, the, the, the widow and, and it just keeps providing and providing and providing. So this is her mentality. Now watch what happens next. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus asks her a, a, a random, seemingly random question. Go get your husband. She answers with a half-truth, maybe? She says, I don't have a husband. Little does she know she's talking to the one who is omniscient, who knows everything. And he says to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. You have five husbands, and the one you have is not your, now that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So what is going on now? Now we've got this woman. Now we're starting to understand why is this lady at the well in the middle of the day where there's nobody else there? The reason is, is she is an outcast among outcasts. Her, the, the morality of her life does not even line up with the morality of the Samaritans of who the Jews hate. And so people will, will, will look at this and they will make a judgment about her. They will look at her and say, what kind of tramp is this woman? She's gone through five husbands and the fish, she, the, she's got another one who, who's not her husband. That's one way to look at her, that she's a tramp. 
There's another way to look at her. The other way to look at her is she is a broken person who has been used and abused and destroyed. That she has gotten herself into all of these bad relationships. You see, many times we immediately we take the judgmental side of things and look down at people. But I don't know if that's really what she was like. But this is what I do know. As much as she's an outcast, as much as she's got morality problems, so too are you and I. We're outcasts. Our sin is just different. And we desperately need the God of the universe to come looking for us. And so this is what's happening. Jesus is on a divine mission to bring salvation to this woman, a woman who is not like him in any way, but a woman who has incredible deep value. Now, this gets kind of humorous here because Jesus has just exposed a part of her life that she does not want to have exposed. And so what does she do? She does the exact same thing that you and I do when we get put on the spot. She changes the subject. Let's not talk about me anymore. Let's, let's, I think we should talk. Let's, let's move the theology a little bit. She says what? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now what's amazing is they're at Sychar. Sychar is, is right where Mount Gerizim is. They're looking at the stinking hill where the temple was. And she's like, right there. That's where we worship, but you worship down there. You know, I go to Living Water, you go to Dayspring or whatever. That's, that's what's going on here. Now, notice what happens. Next set of verses, please. Jesus said to him, her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is about where you worship what, what, what your, your worship looks like is not the pressing issue right now. It's what your heart is like. It is, are you right with the God of the universe? He says, you worship what you don't know. But the hour is coming, and, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's not pulling any punches. He's being straightforward. He's not trying to please her in any way. And, and here we are. What do we say? We say salvation only comes from one. Where? What place? Jesus. That's it. We are following in the footsteps of our master. But the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers, which means that there are false worshipers out there, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now the woman, she's starting to understand. 
This has nothing to do with physical water. This has something to do with my relationship with the God of the universe. And the woman says to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And what does Jesus do? You remember he tells lots of times, he tells his people that figure out who he is, don't tell anybody else. To this woman, this this woman who has either been abused, is morally bankrupt, is from a a different racial identity, a different faith system, who's a pagan worshiper, basically, he reveals himself. That is how God works. God goes to the unlikely, to the marginalized, to to the ones who are not popular, to draw them to himself. He intentionally goes there, and it continues. He says, I who speak am he. You go to the next slide, Brenda, please. Just then, after the big reveal, our 12 bumbling disciples show up. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They're shocked. Here, here, they know he's the Messiah. Well, they're trying to figure it out. He's told them, but they're trying to figure it out. And he says, but Noah said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. What happens here? The woman is so blown away that she has encountered the God of the universe. The very thing that she came for, water, is the last thing on her mind. She leaves the stinking water jar behind. And she goes into town. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What what is happening here? She gets, right, Ella, you are so right. She finally gets the picture. But there is something else that's happening here. You gotta, she's ostracized. She's looked down upon. Nobody wants anything to do with her. And she goes into town, and her life has been so incredibly, radically changed that she puts all of that fear of rejection behind her. And she shares that she has found Jesus. And when our hearts are truly changed by Christ, we can't help but do the same thing. Many times, I don't share my faith just because I'm stinking afraid. And here is this woman. She has been radically changed, and she can't help but tell others about Christ. And what is the response? The people from the town flock out to Jesus. Go to the next slide, please, Brenda. Now, meanwhile, (laughs) these guys are so clueless. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. We're done with water. Now we're talking about food. All right? I've got food that you don't know about. So the disciples say to one, has anyone brought him anything? Anybody slide him? You know, did anyone get like, you know, the Chick-fil-A sandwich for him or whatever? And Jesus says to him, my food, how I'm nourished, where I get my strength from, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he says this, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? They're saying, in four months, the harvest is going, that's just what's the timing going on here. And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. When they lift up their eyes, what are they seeing? Everybody in town coming to Jesus. Why? Because an outcast woman, someone who was marginalized, someone who was thought other, but someone who was thought less than, is intentionally encountered by Jesus, and her life is transformed, and she can't help but tell others. Go to the next slide, please. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying that holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What's this a picture of? The picture is, you know what? Every time you share doesn't mean they're going to respond. And it may take hundreds of times of people sharing the gospel with someone else before they come to faith in Christ. I know that happened in my life. I rejected Jesus time and time and time again until one day it finally clicked. We've got one more slide, Brenda, is that correct? I think there is. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed, not because of her word, but because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This passage, John 4, is a picture of what God does when Christians intentionally engage other people. Other people who are different than them. When they take a risk, where they do things where they are going to be radically afraid that they are going to be rejected, what they will find and what we will discover is that God is at work already, drawing people to themselves. This is why we do what we do. This is why we are intentional. And, and we could go to Jesus' high priestly prayer. As a matter of fact, we'll go there just for a second, and then, then we'll wrap up because my countdown clock is telling me to wrap up. 
But go ahead, just open your Bible for a second to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. This is a prayer that Jesus is praying uh, before he, just right before he gets arrested out of, out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this prayer, he first prays for himself, he then prays for his disciples, and then ultimately he prays for you and me. And this is what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these, I don't have this on the screen, I'm sorry. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So, Jesus talking about us 2,000 years ago. He's talking about us. And what does he ask for the Father? He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That, that when we are one, when, when we come together, as, as people from different ethnicities and economic statuses and educational backgrounds and abilities, when we come together, it shows the oneness of the Trinity. And he says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Do you think that God wants people to be together? You can't say one enough times in this passage. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one. And here's the kicker, folks. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What happens when the people of God actually come together? A watching world sees for their own eyes that Jesus is real and that God loves them. Unity in the midst of diversity in the body of Christ is the most powerful evangelism tool there is on the face of the planet. When this mess comes together, it shows the world that God can do something that, that no government program can pull off, that, 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 that no educational thing can fix, that, that no, no, no sports team is going to solve, that we can come together and figure out how to work in the midst of our differences in unity. And when we do that, with the gospel as our undergirding foundation, when we do that, the world takes notice that Jesus is true and that the God of the universe has a love for them that they desperately need. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. I thank you for these folks and their kindness to, to listening, uh, Heavenly Father, to this. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will leave this place, uh, Lord, with a renewed passion, Heavenly Father, to reach others for the cause of the gospel. Lord, that we would put aside preconceived uh, thoughts about others. That, Lord, that we would be quick to ask forgiveness for the things that we have done wrong. That we would be quick to offer grace and kindness, Heavenly Father, for those who have sinned against us. 
Lord, thank you for these last 21 years. Thank you for the great joy that is brought into my life and in Cass' life and the lives of those who helped start living water and the lives of all those who have been a part of it over all these years. And now, Lord, we thank you for this offering that we are about to receive. We pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be used for one purpose and one purpose alone, that your gospel would be declared here in central Pennsylvania and throughout the United States and throughout the world. Help our leadership team to be faithful stewards of these resources that have been entrusted. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.